Indeed, the question is not being separated from God's love. He loves even his enemies. And his son even said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. The only question is whether we can separate ourselves from loving him. That's the only question that really there is or remains. A very good message there. I hope that the words yesterday were an encouragement and a strengthening to us all to help us realize that this is a very personal thing that we're involved with. It's not just so many words, so many doctrines, but God is very concerned with each and every one of us and is working with each and every one of us and does love each and every one of us. And in that light, I want to change the direction a little bit today. It it borders on the same in a way. You've probably all seen Western movies in your life where a horse-drawn wagon, usually a covered one, would come into town, and everybody called it the snake doctor or something similar to that. And they always had an elixir of life, some potion, some formula that they had worked up, usually alcohol-based, which would make you feel better, would solve your problems, and be a magic potion. If you would take that, you would feel better. Well, a wagon didn't bring it to town, but in the little town I had, I guess it had to come out of some mail-order catalog. But my paternal grandfather would come in from work in the middle of the day or in the evening, have his noon meal or his evening meal, and he would have to have his shot of Hadakal. Some of you older people may remember Hadakal. We didn't know what it was, but it made Grandpa feel better. One day I snuck in by his chair and picked it up and read the ingredients, and it was mostly alcohol. He didn't drink, but he had to have his hat a call. Then came the days of tent revivals. <clears throat> I remember when those came to our little town, out on the outskirts of town somewhere. They'd set up a big ragged tent, and you'd hear gospel music spreading in the evening, and people would come from miles around to the tent revival. Neil Diamond had a song about that, oh, back in the 70s, I suppose it was, sometime, called Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. Pack up the babies and grab the old ladies and everyone goes to Brother Love's show. And it went on like that. He'd come in with his eyes black as coal and every ear in the place was on him. And when he let go, half the valley quaked. It was kind of a spoof, really. But you know, the world does have pretty much a magic potion. And when you boil Protestantism down to its basic elements, Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show had it all, and it hasn't changed a whole lot since. Come down to the altar, accept Jesus, and you're saved. Three-step formula, pretty easy. All done. 
You can never fall from grace. Your salvation is assured because once saved, you're always saved. You could walk out of that tent with a happy feeling and never have to worry. No matter what you did, you'd been saved. People fall for those things. You know that? Today we have our miracle drugs on television. You take this, it'll solve all your problems. It'll give you headaches and dizziness and nausea and upchucking and your liver will fail and your kidneys will fail and you'll die, but it'll solve your problem. Yeah, I guess so. You stop to think about it. So people generally are suckers for something that's kind of a magic formula that works, aren't they? All right, I'll be your medicine man today. I found a formula that if you will follow it, you will never fall, your salvation will be guaranteed. How's that? Sound pretty good? Anybody buying? Meet me right up behind afterward. Turn, if you would, to Second Peter. That comes right after First Peter in most Bibles. Rarely turned to. <laughs> Once in a while. We quote out of First Peter quite a bit, don't we? I thought of going there today, and then I discovered this was still back here, and thought, hey, that might be interesting. <clears throat> the basic message of First Peter is hope, and... The message of Second Peter is perhaps bifold, hope and urgency. Let's have a look at this today and see if we can find a magic formula here. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Emmanuel, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Emmanuel. So here's Peter addressing the people, and I want you to understand the setting of this. It'll be mentioned later in the book. But this is a man who will shortly, after penning this letter, die. He had known for a long time that he would die. If you go back to John 21, uh, Christ had told or said something that John, or Peter had asked, you know, about life, and Christ had told him, you're going to die. And he said, well, what about John? Because John had been very close in a relationship to Christ. And he said, what's it to you if I let him live till I come back? Now, the rumor started going around that Christ had said John was going to live until he came back. But an addendum is put in there, but he didn't say that. He says, what if I said that? See how rumors get started so easily? But Peter later was to die, and as tradition has it, not only crucified on the stake, but upside down on the stake. The most ignominious death you could face was crucifixion. And to be crucified upside down was just a, an additional slap in the face. And Peter lived throughout his life preaching and teaching, knowing that one day he would be called upon to die. 
His Savior had told him, you will. Made it very clear to him. Now, when he wrote the second epistle of Peter, he knew that the time was drawing very near when he would die. So, in a way, what we have here are the dying words of Peter. The last message he would give before he was killed. So what he has to say here must be very, very important. He must have thought carefully of what he could impart. You know, if you were on your deathbed about to cork off, and you had your relatives and your kids there, you've admonished them all their lives about the way you want them to live and what you want them to do and so on, and what your last will and testament might be, and you know you cannot control it once you slip away. So you would choose very carefully your last words to be sure you could impart everything possible to those people that could be valuable to them as their lives went on. So let's look at this from that standpoint. These are the finest words he could choose, and inspired by God. It says in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Emmanuel our Lord. According as His divine power has given us, or given to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. So he says, I want you to realize right from the beginning that to me, to us as apostles, has imparted, been imparted everything you need to know about life and death. I'm about to die physically, but I want to live forever. And someday you will die physically, and I want to tell you the things that you need to do to ensure that you live forever. What greater message could you give than that? So everything that pertains to life and to godliness. Here's what we need to know about godliness. And he's called us by glory and virtue. His glory, his virtue. He's called us to be like that and to come to be like he is. So he sets the standard here of what we need to focus on what we need to think about, and what needs to be central to our lives if we're to succeed in the purpose for which God placed us here. Verse 4, Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. What are those? No pain, no sorrow, no tears. Life everlasting, happiness, joy, security, everything you could want. Those are the promises. Life eternal. That by these... You might be partakers of the divine nature. He's going to give us something here that would be valuable to us in obtaining divine nature. Not human nature. Not to continue on as we are. For if I were to have to live forever as I today am, I think I would pass without question. I would not want to live as a human being fighting Wrong temptations, wrong desires, wrong thoughts, wrong actions, wrong goals, wrong purposes. I would not want to be wrinkled and old and ugly for several millennia. This human life is transitory. It's short. It doesn't last very long. 
So he's going to give us something here that will help us take on divine nature. God, by nature, is love, joy, peace, security, strength, power, all those things. By nature. He doesn't have to try to love his enemies. It's natural for him. He doesn't have to try to be patient. Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. You know the old story. He doesn't have to try to be patient. He just is. He doesn't have to be forgiving or work at being forgiving like we do. He just is. Part of his nature. He never has to fight depression or self-pity. He is just automatically upbeat, joyous, because joy is one of the fruits of his spirit. Just joy comes naturally. Depression, in that sense, is unknown to him. That's the divine nature we're after. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust for any and everything. Materiality, beauty, sex. Knowledge, brilliance, you know, there are all kinds of things that people desire, covet after, and might lust. And he goes on and says, and beside this, giving all diligence. Alright, here's an urgency. Here's something that you need to really work at. When you see someone who's diligent, and whatever they're doing, they're getting with it, aren't they? It's like being in a pit full of snakes. And you're trying to stomp them all before they bite you. Then you're diligent, aren't you? You can stomp fast. He wants us to be diligent. So, whatever he's about to tell us here, we need to be in a hurry about. We need to be urgent about. We need to be diligent in. Not slack, not lazy, not half-hearted, but diligent. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Get after it. Add to your faith. All right, we start out then with faith, don't we? Faith is something that needs something added to it. We talked about faith a bit yesterday. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You don't know how you're going to get there. You don't know all the answers, maybe, but you trust and you believe in someone bigger than you and more powerful than you and more understanding than you that can get you there. That's what faith is all about. And without question, you do what he says because he's a captain of your salvation. He's been there. He knows the trail, knows the way. Have you ever started out somewhere and not really known where you were going? There's a certain insecurity involved, isn't there? Whether it's traveling or hiking back in the jungle or whatever. You go into unknown terrain. I know I've approached the North Woods sometimes very, with great trepidation because there were no mountains sticking up in some places in British Columbia where I went to hunt moose. And all it was was trees. And you know, all those trees look alike. Miles and miles of nothing but trees with rolling, just barely rolling hills. 
I like it where I can see a mountain sticking up and use it as a guidepost. Then I know what direction I'm going because I, I watch it. So when I go back in those trees, I'm looking around trying to figure out, I don't know where I'm going, and I'm not sure I'll know when I get there, unless there's a moose at the end somewhere, then I'll know where I am. But once he's laying down and there's 1,500 pounds of hide and fur and meat and bone and muscle laying there, I'm going to go get him out of there. Because I walked in two, three, four miles and all those trees looked alike. It's a little scary. But you've got to have faith in the captain of your salvation who knows the trail, who's been there. He knows everything that must be done. And he imparted it to Peter, to James, to Paul, to John, and told them to write these things down, inspired them to write them, so that we might find our way. So we start out with trust that he knows the way and can lead us there. Now, to that trust, that belief, that faith, add to your faith virtue. You need to be virtuous in life. Now, here's, here's your magic potion. You'll see that before we're done. Here's your elixir of life. Here's your snake oil medicine. Your wonder drug. This is a formula that if blended together will work. Be virtuous in your belief in how you walk. Do things right, in other words. Do them according to the script. And to virtue, or integrity is another good word for virtue, have integrity, not hypocrisy, not saying one thing and doing another, as was brought out in the sermonette, but having integrity. And to that integrity, you need knowledge and what to do. So to your integrity, add knowledge, proper knowledge. It helps to know where you're going. It helps to know the woods, if you will, to know the path. So maybe you get a map and study it. That might help. The Bible is the road map to the kingdom of God. So you have to have proper knowledge. And then to knowledge... Temperance or moderation. We are to be careful not to go overboard in wrong directions. Yes, we need to be diligent. We need to do it with our might. But at the same time, we need to be careful that we don't get unbalanced in our viewpoints. So we need to be temperate. And to temperance, patience. Because if you go through all these things, you still... Even though you may have learned integrity and proper knowledge in the right way, you still can't get there unless you're patient because things don't always happen immediately, do they? There are times we'd like things that we want to happen right now. And that is the way our society is trained. Instant gratification, I want it now. I'll put myself in hock and pay interest through the nose for years just so I can have it now whatever it might be. No, we must have patience. It's a fruit of God's Spirit. 
and to patience, godliness. To act, to think like God. So far, this is a fairly simple formula, isn't it? Pretty straightforward. Just this is a succession of things you need to do. Like you're making a cake, you need to put in these ingredients, and when you get on, you got a cake. So it's quite simple. There's not any big words here. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. He's boiling down here to a summation of the Ten Commandments, really. Be kind to your brother. That's, see, that's what this is all about. We're going to be in the kingdom of God, and we're going to be with other beings in that family forevermore. So what it all boils down to is relationships. You women on a physical level are probably better at it than men are. Because your life is about relationships. Man's is about his job and hunting and his wife and his car and his wife and his, you know, whatever hobby or whatever it might be. But her life focuses mostly on him and the relationship. And a lot of guys, when she says, it's time we talk about our relationship, he's going to get set. Okay, look, maybe, maybe not. If we're learning, we shouldn't be that way, but that's what it's really all about. Maybe that's why God made the mothers to be the primary people who deal with children. They're the ones that do it on a day-by-day basis. They tend to have more patience, more tolerance than men do. And to brotherly kindness and to brother uh, add love. See, the most important thing is love, and that's what this formula comes down to. You put all these ingredients together, and it equals love. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. So the whole focus, then, is to have godly love. And here's a formula that produces it. You can just get a feeling inside, a glow, and that isn't necessarily godly love. That may be emotion. But godly love is based on faith, integrity, knowledge, temperance, patience, and godliness is what it's based on. So it's based on every word of God and following them. Okay, that's it. I guess we're done. So all you had to do at the medicine show was buy the bottle and go home and drink it. Everything would be okay. Let's go on and read more, though. He, he has more to say. That wasn't all. He didn't just drop it there and say, these are my dying words. Bye. Isn't the way he did it. Verse 8, for if these things be in you, and abound, not just a little bit of it, but a lot of it, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Emmanuel. Now, we are told that we are, he's the vine, we're the branches. We're told he's the tree, we're the fruit. And to be barren and unfruitful is what gets a tree plucked up and thrown away, isn't it? Or a vine. So he says, here's the formula that if you'll do this, you will be fruitful and you will multiply in the aspects of God's Spirit. 
But he that lacks these things is blind, cannot see afar off. See, without vision, the people perish. We need to be able to see beyond today. We need to be able to see afar off of what's coming and how to get there. And has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. See, there's a formula here that we need to be following on a day-by-day basis. wouldn't hurt to write these down and put them on a card where you could see it and say, am I doing this today? Now, maybe you can remember all these things in this formula. Maybe you can't. Oftentimes, women will have a box of recipes or a book of recipes because they can't remember all the recipes and the ingredients of making a particular dish. So they get out the recipe, and they follow the recipe to be sure they have all the ingredients in there. Now, some that you use a lot, you memorize. You don't need it. You just go in the kitchen and start stirring it together because you know what goes in. Well, maybe we need to look at these pretty often and go to this recipe a lot, and maybe then we wouldn't need it written down. Maybe we'd remember all these things. There's only about, what, six, seven, eight things here you've got to remember. Not all that many. If you do follow this, it says you'll be fruitful. And if you lack these things, you're, you're going blind. You can't see where it is that you need to go. And you may forget that you were purged from your old sins, and you may even drift back into them. If you don't follow this formula, the cake may turn out not turn out the way you wanted it to. If you leave out an ingredient or two, it makes a difference, doesn't it? I've seen people leave the baking soda or baking powder out and serve flat biscuits. I've seen them pick up the wrong shaker and put salt in instead of sugar. That'll do it. <laughs> got to get the ingredients right, don't you? And you got to bake it in the right heat, 350 degrees for 30 minutes. Otherwise, it'll be gooey or it'll be too black or whatever. You've got, you got to do it right. You've got to follow the formula. So he's giving us one here. And he's encouraging us that here's a way to be fruitful. And if you don't do this, you could slip in back into old ways and be in trouble. So he says, instead of that, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He's telling you right here that he had lived a Christian life, all those years, and he had made his calling and election sure, and he's telling us as a, an about-to-die man, you need to do the same thing I've done. Here's the formula. This is what I had to go by. You know, and Peter didn't always have that mindset. Sometimes he went off that way or went off the other way, and he had to be castigated greatly. Get behind me, Satan, is... Pretty strong coming from your Lord and Master. So, having lived this life for many years, what he's telling us is, I had to believe. I didn't have faith to start with, and he didn't, did he? Man, did he ever run? I don't know him. Did that show faith? Did it show integrity? No, it showed that a scared man runs when he should stand and fight. He didn't have all knowledge either, because he didn't get it 
just like the others didn't either. Always had to be explained to them. Now, here's what I'm talking about. Sit down, children. Look here on the board. Here's what I'm talking about. They just didn't get it most of the time. He's giving us a history of his life here, if you will. And was Peter temperate? Remember the sword? The high priest's ear? Or the high priest's servant's ear? I'm sure he took a wild swing at his head and missed and just got the ear. It wasn't a temperate response. He tended to be diligent to do it with his might. But you, got, you, you might better do the right thing, too, with your might. And he did not suffer from an overly great amount of patience, either. He wanted things right now. Let's get on with it. I'll go out there and kill them all. Peter had some problems initially, but he learned over the years. He also learned that to the patience he needed to have, since he was somewhat impetuous, was he also needed some godliness. <laughs> he wasn't really godly by nature. He was just a rough, coarse old fisherman. And he took care of things like a rough, coarse old fisherman. If it's wiggling, stomp it. <laughs> you know, bottom of the boat, I've been there, and I know. And he also needed to learn love. So he had some lessons to learn in his life, and by the time he was about ready to die, he said, you know, I've sorted this thing out. Here's what it all boils down to. Give it a listen. So he says, make your calling and election sure, and here's the formula to do it. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. There's an absolute guaranteed formula that will work, and if you will follow this recipe, you will never fall. Now, is that a guarantee or what? It's not just a year or three-month guarantee against faulty parts, which lets them off the hook and says, well, look, you know, it wasn't faulty, you just misused it. That's the kind of warranty you get from this world. This one's one he promises will work. God put it in the Bible. For so an entrance shall be ministered to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Emmanuel. Abundantly. It's like I was saying yesterday. I don't want him up there saying, Well, Dad, have you made up your mind about him yet? This thing's getting close. <laughs> you know, let's, let's have a decision here. What do you think? Yeah, me too. I want abundant entrance into life. I want them to be pleased to have me there. Now, what is God's attitude? It says to cast all your care on Him, for He cares for you. There's another one that says, it is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is not going to give that gift grudgingly. It is His good pleasure. He delights in it. He wants to do it. He's sitting there saying, come on, you guys. 
I want to give you this. Please do what I say, and I'll just be so happy to give it to you. You know, when you really like someone, and you go shopping, you spend your time going through the stores because you really care about that person. You have an affection for them, a desire to make them happy. You'll go through store after store, and you'll finally light on something and she says, Ah, that's him, that's her, that one I'll get for so-and-so. And it makes you so happy to finally find something you think they would delight in. So you grab it and you buy it and you take it to them and you get all happy inside hoping that they will enjoy it, that they'll appreciate it, that they'll appreciate your feelings, they'll appreciate your sense of humor or your depth of concern or whatever emotion you're trying to evoke, you're hoping it works. Instead of them saying, oh, oh, I've got one of those. That's a letdown, isn't it? I already have one of those. Why don't you just take it back? Get the money. I'd love to have the money. That's what they do with Christmas gifts, isn't it? Man, the stores are just besieged the next day. People bring them back stuff they don't like. And if you find out about it, you're crushed. Well, not you, because you don't do that one, but used to. You thought you picked out something with love that they would really like. And they just don't like that loud plaid. Whatever it is you picked out. Didn't fit, wrong color, wrong size, not my style. Take it back, get the money. Some people won't go to that trouble, will they? They'll just hand you a gift certificate and say, go get what you want. They're either not concerned enough, to care enough, to think enough, to find something that they think will please you. So you just say, here, go to the outback and have a steak on me. Well, maybe there's a certain amount of feeling love there. They wouldn't care about you having a meal, but how much thought has to go into that? You know, how, how personal, how close, how loving is a gift certificate at the pennies or Sears? Now, he has great pleasure in giving us the kingdom so it could be administered abundantly to us. Now, that's his mind and attitude. He really, really, really wants to give it to us. Do we really, really, really want it? If we really, really, really want it, we will diligently apply this recipe and he'll give it to us. Verse 12, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Because I know you already know this, and you do, don't you? You've read the Bible. You've heard these stories. You've heard these formulas in different ways throughout the Bible. But we need to be constantly reminded week by week, because it's so easy to forget. So many people have been apart from a congregation. I remember when I was very young, we were, well, there was no congregation, I guess, in Texas at that time. And then they established one in Big Sandy, and it was 500 miles away. And we had no superhighways then either. You couldn't just set it on 80 and go there. 
You had to go after town after little town after little town, and it took seemingly forever to go 500 miles in those days. We were on our own out there. It was hard to grow because you weren't being fed. You couldn't tune in even by telephone and hear a message. You could barely hear over XELO or XEG Herbert Armstrong speaking, and it would come in and out and fade back and forth, and that's all there was. And unless you're properly fed, it's hard to grow. And even now, when people are sort of out on their own, away from anyone else, they tend to slip slowly backward, to take things for granted, not to do things diligently and the way they ought to be done. Sometimes maybe it gets tiresome being preached at, but if you're not, you'll slip slowly away. It's happening to the church all over the place right now. Verse 13, yes, I think it fitting as long as I am in this body to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Nothing new here, but we need to remember it. Here we are in the last day, Feast of Tabernacles, the time picturing peace and prosperity on this earth when we will be kings and teachers and and uh, priests and teachers, teaching people God's way, as Peter is us here. Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle or my body, even as our Lord Emmanuel has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my death to have these things always in remembrance. In other words, I'm going to write it down. I'm not just going to preach it to you. I'm going to write it down so you'll always have it to refer back to and to remember, these my dying words, my last letter to you. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Emmanuel, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He says, I'm not just some fellow that fell off the turnip truck. I'm not the traveling salvation show. I'm not the purveyor of the elixir of life. I was there. I saw him. I talked to him. I trained under him. I know. Now, what is necessary? These aren't just a bunch of dreams or fables we've designed to make you think that here's a recipe that will make you feel good forever. This is it. This is the truth. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was standing there. He heard the voice. He saw Emmanuel rise in the air into the clouds and disappear without a helicopter. He just went. He saw it. That would have got you, wouldn't it? You're standing there talking to someone and suddenly they just start rising and disappear. Must have made an impression. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. We not only have that, we saw it with our own eyes, but we have a more sure word of prophecy 
whereto you do well that you take heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Who is the true light bringer? Not Satan. It's our Lord and Master. So he says, we've got prophecy that we're supposed to pay attention to until the day star arrives. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private origination. The word here is not interpretation. The origin of that prophecy is not just from some human being who wrote things down that he dreamed up. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There's no, no private origination of any of the prophecies. God inspired those. That ties in with 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all Scripture is by inspiration of God. I talked to some people recently who questioned Paul. I've run into people like that occasionally. Paul says you don't have to be circumcised. Ah, bye, 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 bye. They find some way around that. Well, Peter didn't agree with him. Well, he didn't at first. But they had a conference in Jerusalem. And James made a decision. And that Paul was correct. All Scripture is given by God. Whatever it instructs is of God. Now, mankind is missing, mistranslated here and there. There have been a few places things have been added. Our Holy Ghost is given instead of Spirit. Not understanding, but those things we can sort through. But the basic Word of God that is here is correct. And it all applies, not just the parts that we like. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you, who privately will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Says, I gotta die, but I'll guarantee you, as there's been in the past, there will be false prophets, false teachers who come in among you. You must be very, very careful, because they could lead you and themselves to swift destruction. I think a good example for us in that would be the Tkachas and the movement back to evangelical Protestantism. They're bringing upon themselves, unless they repent, swift destruction. And they're bringing destruction upon those who followed them. That was hard for a lot of people to sort out. Do you know that? There was an awful lot of confusion over that. Because we've been taught all the time, this is the church. You can't leave the church. That's one of the toughest questions a member of the Worldwide Church of God ever faced. Was when false teachers came in, seeing through their false doctrine, and maybe in a lot of cases we could see through the false doctrine, but we had trouble grappling with the question, can I leave the church? not understanding at the time we weren't leaving the church, the ministry was leaving God and leaving the church, the called out ones, in the lurch. It took some time to sort through that. I kept saying, well, I know they're wrong, but 
Christ will straighten it out. That was my justification for staying for a while. One day I was driving down the road. I don't even know where I was headed at this point, but I remember being in the car, driving, and suddenly it hit me. I know when He'll straighten it out. It'll be in the Great Tribulation. I don't want to go there. I better get out now. Because they're teaching false doctrine. And if I follow it and I follow them, I'm headed for destruction. Scary. But that was a toughie. We all had to face it. Many shall follow their pernicious ways. The word for pernicious here is translated lascivious in some copies of the Bible. And lascivious, lascivious means lawless. Many will follow their lawless ways. They'll tell you the law of God is done away and does not have to be followed. That's pernicious. And it's lawless. But if following their lawless ways will destroy you, then that must mean you must follow the law, on the other hand. Wouldn't it? So he's telling us here, don't follow their lawless ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They ridicule us now, those who left, who left the truth. They didn't leave the organization, they left the truth. And now they ridicule us who've stuck to it. Those people who think they have to follow the law and keep the Sabbath. Aren't they fools? The way of truth is evil spoken of. And through covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. They did away with tithing, thinking that the love of God would cause us to send even more than 10%. And when the income plummeted immediately, that's the only thing I know of to date that they've ever restored was tithing. Because it was all about money. You have to watch out. Whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. Remember how David in the Psalms would reflect, think about, how is it that the wicked seem to prosper? How is it that I'm trying to do what's right, nothing goes good for me? Does this sound familiar at all? <laughs> I try to do what's right, and I have nothing but trials, troubles, tribulations, failures, difficulties, and so on. You're not any different than David, the king of Israel, who will be king over all Israel in the world tomorrow in the kingdom of God. He faced the same deal. It just seemed like the God's way to him on this earth was just tough. It's just tough. He complained to God. Why did all the wicked prosper? Look at me down here. I'm in trouble. That was his prayer. Sounds almost like talking back, doesn't it? But by the time he would end each one of those prayers or psalms, he'd get his attitude straightened out. And he'd come to realize that the wicked do seem to prosper now, but their way is going to go away. It'll just disappear. God is allowing it for the time being. We'll see more of that tomorrow. 
So don't worry about it, he says. Their damnation slumbers not. And I'm not just talking about the Tkach world of whiters or the evangelicals, whatever they call themselves today. But any who might be wicked and any teachers who might come in who are bringing any different gospel than that which we know. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, Satan and his demons, but cast them into Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved to judgment. The judgment has not been finalized, but they are chained in darkness. Their minds have gone black. They're evil, they're full of hate, misery, envy, jealousy over us. They know we'll be a part of the kingdom of God, and they want to see us destroyed through whatever type of sin they can lead us into. So God didn't spare them. He's got them reserved in blackness. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. This, God has already showed us. He's given examples that when He acts, it's pretty pervasive. Only eight people survived that flood. Now, we think it's a big flood when eight or ten people get killed or Katrina knocks down the levees and two or three or four thousand people get killed. There were billions of people on earth when that flood came. And they were all floating around with their bellies bloated, except eight. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those after that should live ungodly. He told Lot, you better pick up and get your hind end out of there, boy. Oh, what do I, bye, bye, bye. No, the angel said, you need to get out of there. Well, what if there's so many righteous men? He didn't want to turn loose of Sodom and Gomorrah any more than you and I want to turn loose of the culture and the society and the Babylon that is around us today. If you just find a few righteous men, will you save this city? What did he want to save it for? He had blind men out there groping, not only for his daughters, but for the angels who were male in appearance. A whole city of queers. Why did he want that saved? Man, he was tied to it. But God just wiped it out. Wham! And his wife looked back. Pillar of salt. She probably got licked up by the animals that happened to come by. He delivered just Lot. I don't know whether that means righteous Lot or only Lot. <laughs> he didn't act too righteous. Vexed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Apparently, Lot hated it. But he didn't want to turn loose of it either. It's, a, it's kind of a strange mix of emotions there. It isn't all given, but he didn't want to turn loose. And yet, he hated it at the same time. That's not so strange, really, when you think about it. 
We talk about how evil this generation is, how evil this society and culture is, and how all the stuff in it is ungodly and tending toward death and destruction. But we still don't want to turn away from it. We want to hang to those parts of it we like. Maybe we're not so different from Lot. For that righteous man, I guess it wasn't only Lot, but he was just. He hated it. He hated to see it destroyed. And don't we? Doesn't it say in Jeremiah that we would have saved this society if we could? This is our nation. These are our people. We would love to see it saved. If we could just get rid of the evil in it, we'd love to see the people saved. But God knows they have to go through it in order to ultimately save them. Can't be saved like they are. Can we? Lot had to do something about it. It wasn't easy to get him to do it, even though he was essentially a righteous man. But he had trouble turning loose. And his wife really had trouble turning loose. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He didn't like what was going on. Couldn't do anything about it. And yet he didn't want to divorce himself from them either. The Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. So we're facing some of the same decisions and difficulties that Lot faced. Some are having trouble turning loose and getting away from the cities, from the bright lights and the various things that they like there, whatever they might be. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Now he says, God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment. Now he's going to point out particularly here some attitudes that we really, really need to watch out for. Remember, this is the advice of a dying man, soon to be killed. He says, God knows about the unjust, but chiefly, or most importantly, or numbers one and two, watch out for this kind, okay? Those that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. There are all kinds of lusts, all kinds of uncleannesses. Spiritually speaking, even seeking materiality and money is an uncleanness because God says you can't serve God and money very clearly because you will love the one and hate the other. You can't serve but two masters. There are all kinds of uncleanness. We immediately think of lust and uncleanness as sexual immorality. It certainly includes that and is a major part of the problems of mankind. You know, they, they accuse the Jews of having problems with sex and money. That's what they label the Jews. Those, those are their problems, sex and money. Somebody quickly tell me a race of people 
that doesn't have those two problems. <laughs> I don't think it's just Jewish. It's the whole world. It's mankind. But there are all kinds of lusts of uncleanness. Power can be a terrible lust in people. It can be vanity and self-centered. We had a lot of that. People wanting to be deacons and elders and ministers and evangelists and apostles. And on and on it goes. And they would polish boots and everything you could think of to try to get honored and raised in rank or whatever. That's the lust of uncleanness. That's a misuse of power in politics. It's not right. They couldn't just serve quietly, anonymously, not let their right hand know what their left hand did, but they had to make a big show of it so they could get recognized and raised in rank. Rank, isn't it something that smells? Something spoiled? Well, it got spoiled, all right. So, one key to watch for is people who are motivated by physical things rather than spiritual things. The unclean things of this world are what are most on their mind. Watch out for that. And those who despise government or dominion. If you see people who are disrespectful to government overall, that is a severe problem. It is a dynamite, dangerous problem. Because God Himself even set over the kingdoms the basis of men. He has a reason for George Bush. He has a reason for a mad mini-jihad and others who are in the reins of power in the nations today. Oh, Jong Tu or whatever he is in North Korea. God has there for a reason. Did I say that sarcastically and with hatred against government? I hope not. They're buffoons, though. They're the basis, the worst of people, the worst of men. They're there to destroy anything God would build, to have false cultures, pagan cultures, ungodly cultures. But God has allowed that, placed them there, because He has, has allowed mankind to be deceived, and He will punish man and get His attention at some point. But it happens in the church, too. You know, we just need to all love Jesus and love each other, and we don't need teachers and preachers. You'll get that from time to time. But it says, how can you learn unless you have a preacher? And how can he come unless he has been sent? Some people send themselves. They don't let God send them. They bring themselves. And you have to be very, very careful. So if you have people who are talking against the ministry, talking against church government, your antenna better go way up quick. The red flags need to come. There is someone you had better avoid because it could kill you. Be very careful. 
See, he says, chiefly, of all the evil that's out there, avoid above all those who have their minds on the physical and those who talk against government. If you're going to have anybody that you avoid, put those at the top of the list. Now, there are others you need to avoid as well. But those would be the two at the top of the list. Presumptuous are they, and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities or offices or positions that God has placed. They're not afraid of that. It just, bah, right out of their mouth. They got an attitude, and they're willing to spread it, and ready, and able, and will. Peter lived a long time as a Christian, and he says, these are the two at the top of the list you better watch out for. They'll try to tear down government and let you have public forums where we vote on what we do or whatever. Those kind of people are frustrated would-be preachers, whether they'll admit it or not, and they want a type of public forum, some of them, so that they can dominate. As long as you have someone in charge... They can't influence or dominate. But if they can get that removed, then they have a chance to influence and dominate. That is the motive behind it. And that does not fail. There's a motivation for that kind of thinking. Why would you talk down Herbert Armstrong unless you thought you had a better answer? Why would you talk down the present-day ministry unless you thought you had a better answer? God calls that presumption. And you know what the sin of presumption is as? Witchcraft. The same category in God's estimation is witchcraft. So you better put that number two on the list. Anyone who is not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, dignities, or office. Peter had learned something in his years. But that's a dangerous person. Someone who's willing to do that and be that presumptuous. And he gives an example, verse 11. Whereas angels, angels of God, they're bright, they're glorious. They fly about. It's faster than the speed of lightning. They go to God's throne. They sing to God, hallelujah, to God Almighty in heaven. Angels we're talking about here now. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might than any human being, bring not railing accusation against them before the eternal. God's angels observe what is going on on this earth, in the politics of the world and the nations, and in the church, and God's holy angels will not dare to go to God's throne and speak evil of those in offices down here who are merely men. Now, does that begin to give us a clue as to what we'd better be careful about? 
But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. God said, brute beasts have a future. They'll be killed and eaten. They'll be killed and their hides made into clothing or ornaments for the tabernacle or whatever. God designed the animals to die and provide something. Or just ultimately to die and not have any hope of resurrection and living eternally. Depending on the size of the animal, they live 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Elephants or crocodiles live maybe 80, 90, even hundreds of years with some reptiles. But that's all there is. And he said, anyone who walks after the flesh instead of after the spirit, now we all have a battle with it, I understand that, and he understood that, because he had a battle with it. But he said, you need to discern if somebody is trying to walk in the spirit, or their motivations, they act religious, but their real motivations are physical. Or someone who's willing to speak of dignitaries in an evil or put-down way. Not even the angels will do it, and they're just like brute beasts. They will be killed. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. This is a pretty ringing indictment, isn't it, if you... Stop to focus on it a little bit. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Let's just party on. The end of the world's not coming. Spots they are in blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Why do we tolerate those attitudes? Why do we tolerate them? God says they're going to die. But they'll go on sporting their unrighteousness as if it's okay. There's no integrity there. There's no real knowledge there. There's some poor spiritual understanding there. And it's going to lead them to death. Having eyes full of adultery, that could be spiritual and physical adultery, God accuses Israel of being full of spiritual adultery. Doing the things, following the desires of the nations of this world or its religions. Spiritual adultery includes doing anything that's unfaithful to God. Lying, cheating, stealing, Sabbath breaking. Those are all spiritual adultery, not being faithful to our Father in heaven and His Son. They can't cease from sin. Beguiling, that is, those who would seduce you to do wrong things. They are full of guile. Unstable souls. They have no spiritual stability because they are not able to recognize what God has built and to respect it and appreciate it, but instead they figure they have all the answers. Be careful for those, about those. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, 
I don't want to be a cursed child of God. I want to be a blessed child of God. One that He will abundantly give life to and be so pleased to give it to me. I've got a long way to go, and I want to be there. Verse 15, Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. They offered him money if he would curse Israel. And he went back and forth and forth and back and tried to act religious. But when it really came down to it, bottom line, he was so focused on money, he didn't even realize he was talking to his own ass. His donkey spoke to him and he answered him back. How distracted are you when that happens? What if your horse talked back? Your donkey. What if someday you kicked your dog and he says, Why did you do that? Balaam beat on his donkey. And the donkey said, What have I ever done to you? Balaam just talked back to him like he was a person. Now, that is distracted. You know, sometimes when we talk to ourselves, people say, You okay? (laughs) What about when you talk to your car and it answers you? Your donkey and it answers you. And then you answer back and it answers back and you answer back. Somebody standing back watching and say, I think it's time to lock that one up. But he was so set at that point on money and trying to work this deal with Balak, the false king, to put down Israel, which God had instituted, that he even forgot and talked to animals. God forbade the madness of the prophet. He was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice. God didn't correct him himself. He said, I guess he just said to the angel, let the donkey talk. I don't know. I've had it. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, and that's what it is, self-centeredness and vanity, if they are following the physical instead of walking in the spiritual, and if they despise the governments that God has set up. It is vanity, ego, and selfishness. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. They try to make their message seem something that you would want. And they'll use your humanness to do it. Your desire to rule. Your desire to influence. Your desire to have a voice. Your desire for whatever. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. We, you know, we came out of the world, and there are those who would take us right back to that way of thinking. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. You'll hear the terms, free in Christ. Well, there is freedom in Christ. Freedom to live the right way and not have the penalties of sin. But they say it's liberty from doing anything, and you'll have no government. Nobody will tell you what to do. See, they're appealing to your vanity there. 
No one will be there to tell you what to do. You have autonomy. It's just you and God. There's nothing between you and God. Well, when properly understood, government isn't between you and God. It's there to lead you to God. But that's not the way it's built. It's built, they're standing between you and God. You don't listen to them. Can't have government. God says that kind of people are going to die. They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Emmanuel, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. You start on the way of truth, you fall away, backtrack, you'd have been better off never to go there. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Commandment? Oh, my. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Many in God's church have turned right back to Protestantism. So it's just like a dog barfing on the ground and then licking it back up. You've seen that, haven't you? It's kind of disgusting. Have you ever had that desire? Puke, and then get down on your all four hands and knees and lick it up? Going back to false religion is tantamount to that. We haven't gotten through chapter 3, and I've got three minutes, four minutes. Let's finish it up right quick. The second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I want to stir up the Spirit of God in you to remember the right things, he says. We've been talking about that here. That you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he says, I want you to focus on two things. The things that the prophets wrote, we get criticized now and then for spending too much time in the prophecies, don't we? Huh. Amazing. Listen to the prophets and to us, the apostles. So read the prophets and read the things that the apostles wrote. So this, this, is, this is what you need to do. That's what we're doing today is reading about the apostles, not the prophets. And saying where, let's see, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, human nature walking after the flesh, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There's no God. Christ isn't coming back. We've got hundreds of years left. Nothing's changed. They'll laugh at it. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. See, there, there are signs of the flood of Noah's day all over the earth. Go to the Grand Canyon. Look at these canyons here in Zion. Anywhere you go, it seems, you see evidence of severe upheaval and water covering the earth. I can go up into the highest mountains and find fossils that were one time under sea. Well, the land came up in Genesis 1. And fossils came with it. But in Noah's deluge, there were some severe things happening. The days of Peleg, the continents were separated. 
and the mountains along the west coast of America and South America were shoved up and wrinkled. That's why we have the Rockies and the Andes. There's been terrible upheaval here. It should be obvious. But they will overlook God in the whole thing, willingly, in spite of all the evidence in front of them. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, by the same ones, God and His Son, are kept in store, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It is coming. It is coming soon. So don't try to deny it or run from it. Get ready for it, Peter saying, because it's coming. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Time may seem long to us, but to him, it's like seven days. The eternal is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. He wants us all to live. But we don't want to live very badly as a race, as humanity. We're willing to overlook God so that we can live the way we want to live. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We'll talk about that some tomorrow if I live that long, and the earth hasn't ended. I don't think it will. But the day of the eternal will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. He's quoting from Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 65 here. With a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There will be few men left. It's not talking about burning the earth to a cinder after the great white throne judgment. It's talking about what will happen before the return of Christ and accompanying it before the world tomorrow is issued in at the beginning of the millennium. That's a different story. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, the end of the world's coming. The end of this age is coming. The earth is going to be a mess. Now, since this is coming... What manner of person should we be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. In spite of all we see happening in the world today, and about to come apart, and all mankind be killed if it weren't cut short, What person should we be considering we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth to be restored, wherein dwells righteousness? Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, he's repeating his urgency here, that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Somebody tried to argue that Peter and Paul didn't get along, so we didn't have to pay any attention to Paul. Did Peter pay any attention to Paul? You bet he did. As also in all his epistles, all of them, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned, spiritually illiterate, and unstable, not really understanding truth, twist, as they do also the other scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, 
Beware. What does beware mean? You see a sign that says beware of dog. What happens? You kind of straighten up and look around, don't you? Beware. Lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge. We have to increase in knowledge. We have to learn more. It's an ongoing process of our Lord and Savior, Emmanuel. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Here's the formula. We know what to do. We know we ought to get after it because this end of the world is coming. There's a new world tomorrow, and we want to be part of it. Peter gives us the advice of a dying man who had made it into the kingdom of God at this point in his life and will be there over one of the tribes of Israel. Good man to listen to. He's going to be one of the prominent people in the kingdom of God. Pretty important little book here.